0: Revelation 2, 8-17 And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword, I know where you dwell,
1: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your goodness. We thank you for your word and I pray that you would help Matt and I as we share the truth of your word. I pray that <clears throat> you would give us boldness in your, our proclamation of your truth. I also pray for the hearers of your word that they too will receive what you have for them today. May we glorify you, may we understand the truth of your gospel and what it means to us today. We love you, Father, and we thank you again for your goodness. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. What is persecution? Christian persecution is any hostility experienced from the world as a result of one's identification as a Christian. From verbal harassment to hostile feelings, attitudes, and actions, Christians in areas of severe religious restrictions pay a heavy price for their faith. Beatings, physical torture, confinement, isolation, rape, severe punishment, imprisonment, slavery, discrimination in education, and employment. And even death are just a few examples of persecution they experience on a daily basis. According to the Pew Research Center, over 75% of the world's population live in areas where severe religious restrictions occur. Also, the United um, United States Department of State Christians are in more than 60 countries face persecutions from their government or surrounding neighborhoods simply because of their belief in Jesus Christ. So as we begin to look at the churches today, it is is important for us to understand on a monthly basis that 322 Christians are killed for their faith every month. 214 churches and their properties are destroyed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians every month, such as beatings, abduction, rape, arrest, and even forced marriages. Some commentators, when they look at the, four, the seven churches have referred to these as seven epics of world history. But there is not a slight hint of that in this text. We must understand these are real churches that are taking, that are experiencing this. Smyrna is mentioned; is not mentioned in Acts. No recording except for right here in Revelations do you hear about the church of Smyrna. It is estimated that um, Paul probably started Smyrna while on his trips in Ephesus. Smyrna was a hotbed of emperor worship. If you didn't offer your yearly sacrifice to Domitian, it was a capital offense. And many Christians faced death because of that. Smyrna's citizens were so loyal to Rome that they built a temple in uh, um, 1995 B.C. where Rome was worshipped. A century later, the Roman general Sulla, ill-clad army, faced a bitter winter. When the Roman soldiers' plight was announced in the General Assembly in Smyrna, citizens took off their clothing and sent it to the soldiers. Rome rewarded the Smyrna's citizens um, by choosing them over other locations for the new temple dedicated to Tiberius in A.D. 26. It is interesting. Smyrna means myrrh. And the substance is used to perf- uh, as a perfume and often used as to anoint a body or for perfume. But it's interesting how you get myrrh. You actually have to wound the tree to get it. You beat on it. You cause gashes in it and then it leaks out. And that's how you get myrrh. Smyrna was called the crown of Asia. This ancient city is what is now known as modern Izmir in Turkey. Was the most beautiful of the Asia miners and in, in the center of science and medicine. Always on the winning side of the Roman wars. Smyrna's Intense loyalty to Rome resulted in a strong emperor-worship cult. It is in this arena that the church of Smyrna find themselves. So let's look at our first passage. So we're in Revelation 2, starting at verse 8. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write... The word of the first and the last who died and came to life. This depiction, the first and the last um, who was dead and has come to life, identifies him as the exalted Christ. Described in Revelations 1, 17 and 18. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And this is John but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not i am the first and the last and the living one i died and behold i am alive forevermore i have the keys to death and hades this term was also used in the old testament as a reference to god if you look at isaiah 44:6 it says thus says the lord the King of Israel, and Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Its application here affirms that Christ's equality and nature with God. This distinction of Christ was to comfort the persecuted believers in Smyrna knowing that they were undergoing difficulties, Christ reminded them that he transcends this world and empowers them to do the same. He goes on to say, I know your tribulations and your poverty, but he says you are rich. In James 2, in verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which, has, which he has promised for those who love him? Likewise, we see in Hebrews 10, 34 through 36, he says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that, you're, you're, that you yourself had a better possession possession, and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have in need of endurance. So when you have done the will of God, you, will, you may receive his promise. The author of Hebrews says you are in need of endurance. Jesus goes on to say, speaking to the Smyrna church, and the slander of those who say that you are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He says although they were Jew physically, they were not Jews, but spiritual pagans. They allied with other pagans in putting Christians to death as they attempted to stomp out the Christian faith. With the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, Judaism became just as much a tool of of Satan as emperor worship. You see, Judaism is no different than any other religion today that denounces Christ or speaks of any other means for a path to God. Jesus goes on to say to the church of Smyrna, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days you will have tribulations. In this passage, it says that their imprisonment will be brief. When we look at First Peter 1, 6 and 7, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than the more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Their faith was tested. You and I, our faith likewise, will be tested. He goes on to say, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. It is the crown of life in which he is giving. This is not an actual crown like you see in royalty that adorns their head. This is more like a wreath as an athlete finish the race. Paul speaks of this crown in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, as the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. When Jesus was here and he spoke to his disciples, he likewise spoke of the tribulations, and the difficulties we would face. In Matthew 10, 21 through 22, he says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all who, for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Likewise in Matthew 24, 9, he says, then they will deliver you up to to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for mine's sake. James likewise tells us in James 1, 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For he for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus goes on to say in verse eleven he, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit of the spirit says to the churches. The phrase, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, ch- to the churches, closes each of the seven letters. It stresses the vital significance of what God is saying to the churches. He is likewise saying that to, hear, to us as believers. It is our responsibility to heed what is being said. He says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Although persecution will cause you to leave this world because of death, we can be assured as believers that we will not face the second death. Yes, you may lose your life here today on this world but we have the assurance that we will not face the second death. So how can we prepare? And what should be our mindset today as believers? I think the first thing we need to do is make sure that we are fully dressed. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 says, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil, forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand on the evil day and having done all to stand firm stand for stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with making supplications for all the saints. Likewise, we see in James, verse 1, 2 through through 5, he says, count it all joy, my brother, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? We often forget that the scripture links persecution and spiritual growth and strength together. What did James say? That the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness that leads to spiritual completeness, that you would be lacking nothing? You see, the church of Smyrna displayed the power and the purity that resulted from enduring persecution. Persecution had purified it from sin, and affirm the reality of its members' faith. Hypocrisy do not, hip, hypocrites do not stay in the face of persecution because false believers do not desire pain. Trials and persecutions um, strengthen and refine genuine faith, but it also destroys false faith. The Bible teaches that persecutions and trials are inevitable for, as an ins, essential part of the Christian life. <clears throat> Acts 14.22 says, Strengthen the souls of the disciples, encourage them to continue in the faith, and say that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, the Christian walk is not like a stroll through the park on a Sunday afternoon. If your walk with Christ is like a stroll in the park, you may want to question your relationship with Christ. Are you truly a Christian or do you just look like one? 2 Timothy 3:12 says, indeed, all who desire to live godly live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. John 16:1 through 2. Jesus said to his disciples, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Some closing thoughts. Have you heeded the words of scriptures yourself, understanding that persecution is a possibility for you in your future? Are you afraid to share the truth about Christ because of the persecution you may receive? You see, some of us are so afraid of all conflict that we will not speak up. We will not share Christ with others because we are afraid. When you hear of other Christians being persecuted, What is your reaction? Are you pleased that it occurred somewhere else rather than here? If God God called you to go and to minister in a place where you knew persecution and death was a risk for sharing the truth of the gospel, what would you do? Would you go or would you resist? Polycarp, a disciple of John, who was, a, uh, who was the Bishop of Smyrna. <clears throat> he was born in A.D. 70 and martyred in A.D. 156. He would have read this letter as a young man of 27 and received courage from it. When he was sought out for martyrdom, he was 86 years old. Fifty years after John's death, Polycarp, the pastor of the Church of Smyrna, was burned for refusing to worship Caesar. A large community... Of that city also proved hostile to the early church. Polycarp was taken to the proconsul of Smyrna, and the proconsul felt pity on him, and they said to him, Swear and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. But Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who had saved me? Fox's Books of Martyrs picks up the story, and it says, at the stake of which he was only tied, but not nailed as usual as he assured them that he should stand immovable. The flames on their kindling, the faggots, um, encircled his body like an arch without touching him. And the executioner, on seeing this, was ordered to pierce him with his sword when so a great a quality of blood flowed out of his, uh, as to extinguish the fire, but his body at the insting, instigation of the enemies of the gospel, especially Jews, was ordered to consume it in a pile. Although his friends requested his body to give him a decent burial, they refuse to allow him to do that you and i must ask the, answer the question if we search if we had such persecution today what would you do i believe that here in america that we too could face one day this type of persecution what will you do Are you ready to face the persecution that could be yours, that could be mine? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time. I pray that the words in which was spoken will touch the hearts of those who are here, that they would wrestle with their identity in you, that they would not be ashamed of the gospel, that they would not be ashamed of their relationship with you, that they would hold fast you, knowing that a greater reward is set before them. May we care more about a relationship with you than those who can hurt us here on this earth. So yes, they may kill the body, but yet we will live forever with you. But to denounce you, to say no to you, that is a far greater tribulation, because we are forever apart from you with no hope of restoration. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people bold for you, that we be like Polycarp, that we would not be ashamed of you, and that we would stand firm. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for salvation, for within that salvation... We have hope, and that hope does not disappoint. Thank you, Father, for this time. In Christ's name, amen.
2: Thanks, Ed. Well, good morning, Gateway. Good to see you all. I will tell you that Pergamum's probably not any better than Smyrna, but uh, we have hope in Christ, right? Let's see. We can get there. I need to raise this up. So I'm going to reread the passage, and um, before we start, if you could go there, to Revelation two, verse twelve through seventeen. Interesting to see some of the parallels between Pergamum and Smyrna. There are several. Um, in terms of pagan worship or the, what the church looked like. Um, we don't know a lot about uh, Pergamum, so I, I don't have much of an intro, but to give you a little context of what Pergamum was like. So let me, let me read this, and then we'll get into it. So, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. and um, You see, Pergamum uh, served as Asia's sort of capital for 250 years. so It was a big sort of city. And legend says that Pergamos, or Pergamum, they are both correct, was built by the son, by a son of Hercules, right? So that's sort of the legend. And supposedly, it was built on a lofty hill in the broad and fertile plain of the Caicos Valley. I don't know if that's the way you say it, by the son of Hercules. And, and the word Pergamos, or Pergamum, literally means parchment. So it's where we get sort of our parchment. I think um, even Paul actually requests his parchments. And so parchment is a writing material it's primarily made out of animal skin. You can still get some of this. It's very expensive, um, but it was first developed in this area, and that sort of the city was known by its sort of um, producing parchment. And um, in this city, in Pergamum, uh, there was a, a large university and a library, as well as some, a lot of different things. They had 200,000 volumes in their library. And just think about this. If every book was made of parchment, Right? and So they have tons of volumes in this library, and it's all written by hand. You can imagine what an incredible library this must be. Right? It's probably second in the, in the ancient world to Alexandria, which had the most volumes of a library, obviously destroyed. We don't have very much of that left. So the, the city had some prominence because of the library and all the culture that surrounded the, the education and the discussion of what, what those books entailed. And this is what we know about the city uh, in the the church in this city of Pargamum. The believers actually faced sort of the difficulties of the church in Ephesus, right? So where the the church that lost its first love, right? And then it also faced some of the difficulties of Smyrna, some of the persecution. So they have sort of both of those things going on, but they withstood some of the persecution, right? So it's not all bad, and especially sort of they they highlight some of this, but um, at the same time, they encountered some false teaching, right? There's a couple of references to an Old Testament reference and then we have the Nicolaitans, which we really don't have a lot of, but if you think about this church, this church began with some new converts, right? So this church really isn't mentioned in the Old Testament other than this time, right? So most likely there would be people that were sort of uh, worshiping pagan gods and they became converts um, to Christ and we have sort of a sprinkling of some Jews also, right? So there's reference to this Old Testament. And the church had decided that they could sort of maintain some kind of Christian credibility, right? And also associate itself with some of the sins of the past, right? So they just bring things with them, right? And Pergamos, or Pergamum, is a Pergamum, is a picture of the church that sort of takes the world's philosophies and just accepts them rather than sort of examining them through the lens of scripture, Right? The church at Pergamum is also sort of a, a picture of any believer, of you and I, any Christian sort of that could be wed to the world or just really loves what the world has to offer and it's sort of temporary, sort of temporal pleasures. Right? So we have both of those things. So the aim this morning is to, as faithful people of the church, we are to have a repentant heart, right, to reconcile ourselves and others to God. So it's both of those. Let us see if I have that. No, I don't have that. So let me say that again. As faithful people of the church, we're to have a repentant heart to reconcile ourselves and others to God. So let's go into, this, into what this, the word says here. Um, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. So how is sort of Jesus described here? He's described with a, with a sharp two-edged sword. This is how He's identified. And the him, who the verse is referring to, is the risen Christ, right? And this is sort of consistent amongst all the callings to the churches, right? He is the one with a two-edged sword, which describes the word of God from Hebrews 4.12, right? For your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing, right, to the soul and spirit. This is also sort of a physical sword. I think Rod had mentioned this last week. This is a long sort of broad sword that cuts on both sides, Right? So it's not just one way. And Revelation 19.15, if you want to sort of turn over very quickly into that, this is, what, um, this is what it says. It tells us what this sword is for. It says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So this is a very sort of threatening introduction of Christ. This isn't pretty. This isn't a lot, of, a lot of encouragement here. So mainly because the church at Pergamum really faces some serious judgment. Right, we don't like that in our culture, but this is what he was saying to the church at Pergamum. This sword is an instrument of judgment falling on those who deserve that judgment. All right, so It says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, that you hold fast my name, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So this, I mentioned, this is the first sort of introduction that begins with sort of a decidedly negative tone, right? The others so far have been pretty encouraging, right? So there's always something that he's pointing out, but not this one. So, number two, the question is, is, what is Christ saying about the condition of Pergamum? Right? And he's saying two things. He's giving a commendation, sort of what, how they are faithful, and then he's actually sharing this concern that he has. He has a few things that he's really wondering. How are they unfaithful? Right? So there's a, a few things here. In verse 13, right, Jesus mentions Satan throne, Satan's throne and where he dwells. The question I have is, are we talking about a literal place? Right? I mean, is this really? We know Satan is not omnipresent right? He actually has to roam the earth, right? A physical roaming of the earth. Now, are we talking about a literal place, right? And, and I'm going to give you a few sort of possibilities that this Satan's throne and the place where he dwells c- could mean. But the throne of Satan, right, was this Gentile sort of base of false religions, all in this city of Pergamum. A lot of stuff going on. And, and they didn't deny Jesus's name or faith, but, you know, they actually sort of They lived in the presence of Satan's throne. So it was just a part of something that they saw in the culture. So Pergamum, if you can think about it, it's sort of like a Berkeley. Pergamum was sort of like a religious center, right, where all the pagan cults worshipped, right? You could probably find all these in the city of Berkeley. You may be able to find them in Castro Valley. Maybe Hayward, right? Um, So you you have these gods. You have Athena, right? You've got this god named Asclepios, we'll talk about him in a minute, right? You have Dionysius, who is sort of another name for Bacchus, the god of sort of, of drunkenness and debauchery. And then you have Zeus, right? You've got all of these gods, and people are vying for this, for this worship of these gods. But you also have something that was similar in Smyrna. You've got this Roman emperor, the Caesar worship that's going on in the church. I mean, that's going on in the city, and the emperor was no longer seen as this military or political leader. He was actually seen as a god, right? And in this city, they built the first temple to Caesar, and in the years to follow, they built more, because if one isn't good enough, two is better, and it became the capital of Caesar worship, right? This is um, Pergamum, right? So in contrast, I just want to sort of Take a step back and just sort of fast-forward a couple thousand years. You think, how, is this, how in this world is this supposed to happen, right? Well, we may not see this in, in America, but if you spent any time in a, in a communist or a dictatorship, you think about North Korea, Iraq during the Saddam Hussein regime or something like that, um, you saw firsthand the elevation of the emperor the dictator, to so an almost like omnipresent godlike figure, right? was all around in every town square, right? This happened a lot in communist Russia where they have statues of Stalin in every city, right? And it's constantly sort of instilling this sense of fear or this sort of omnipresent that, that here's the dictator, they're always watching. So now we have sort of Athena, you've got Asclepios, you've got Dionys- Dionysius, you've got Zeus, and now you have Caesar worship. And you've got all these things, right, going on. And they developed this Caesar worship and all of these other forms of worship. Now, as long as you worship Caesar, right, you could actually sort of get, you know, include anyone else in addition. But you had to worship Caesar. And, and this made it really tough for Christians. You just think about that, right? They worship Christ and him alone and refused on the one day of the year when you had to burn incense or worship Caesar. And they refused to do it. And therefore, all these other things that went with it. You know, you lost your rights as a citizen, right? And you lost some, in some cases, you actually lost your life, right? So there's some real persecution going on. And there's this church, right? And this refusal would have been intensified in the city of Pergamum because it was the capital city for Caesar worship, right? And probably it was required more than just one day of the year. Um, and this sort of leads us to this, this person that we have here named Antipas. Right? And um, according to tradition, this is really good on Father's Day, Antipas was barbecued to death inside a brass bowl. Right? So they have this sort of they stuck him in there and they roasted him. And uh, it was uh, during the Emperor Domitian, which actually Edd mentioned. Right? Here was here was a man who paid the ultimate price for re- for his refusal to compromise and worship Caesar. Right? because of his faithfulness, but well, this is what Jesus says. Jesus honors him with a similar title as himself and calls him the faithful witness. Right? Jesus refers to that himself in Revelation 1.5. He calls himself the faithful witness. He calls Antipas the faithful witness. So something was happening. Antipas was some kind of other leader in the church, but he was certainly um, killed. So Jesus, he, he commends the church right, for being faithful during persecution. Right? In an intense time where Antipas is, was martyred, and all of a sudden now we begin to see actually the, the, the people in the church that were actually killed for the sake of Christ, they're no longer witnesses of Christ, they're now called martyrs. And it's a big transition. right? So you're going to think in, in terms of this, well, how would this really be sort of uh, possible? Right? And I'm just going to sort of say this, you know, what if you were to turn on the television tonight to watch some national broadcasts, some news, that beginning with our next president, whoever they happen to be in 2016, the end of 2016, you are going to be required to burn incense and worship once a year to our new president. And then they're going to sort of ratchet this up. In 2017, right, it's going to be increased to once a month, right, sort of beginning of the end of 2017. And then in 2018, you'll be required to worship the, the American president um, uh, every day. And what would you do? Could you withstand the persecution if, if, uh, if you were faced with required president worship? And if it meant maybe the loss of your job or something like that? It's a real possibility and you didn't comply. In Matthew, Jesus says this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church And the throne of Satan will not prevail against it. You know, we can't sort of dismiss just because this this is a negative one that actually there wasn't a true church in Pergamum. I mean, they were sitting in the belly of the beast of all of the pagan rituals and everything like that, right? There was a growing church there. This was a saved church. These people were actually saved. And, And this was a church that held fast to his name and didn't deny the faith in Christ. And that's what Christ is commending them for, for standing firm and standing tall in the face of intense persecution. And I have another thing this to talk about Asclepios. And this is this, um, the god of healing. Very interesting part to this story. A lot of times you just wonder where this sort of comes in and a little bit more on the, on the Satan's throne. Starting in Pergamum, there was this sort of massive altar on the Acropolis, which is sort of this area. You can even go to Greece and see the Acropolis that looked like a throne. And it had all of these carved sculptures around it that described um, what the gods were doing. And Asclepios was the god of healing. Right? A very famous individual came from Pergamos. His name was Galen, right? and he was a, a medical doctor. He was almost as famous as sort of what we call Hippocrates, which is sort of where the Hippocratic Oath comes from. And uh, in the city of Pergamos, there was a medical school. And uh, this was a famous place of medicine. So people would come, um, and mingled into the medicine was all of this superstition that went along with it. So the emblem of the idol of Asclepios was a snake. Now, um, you know, fast forward, if, if you were to actually see the medical symbol, you'll notice that it also has a snake sort of rolling around the pole. And that is the ancient god, Asclepios, right? That's the the god of healing. Even still today, we consider it. Well, when you would go over to the temple of Asclepios, you were there to be healed. And so what they did is they actually wanted you to um, actually sleep in this area where they had all of these venomous snakes crawling all over. So for for those of you that don't like snakes, uh, no chance of healing for you. But... (laughs) if you didn't mind them, and if you really wanted to be healed, they gave you a sedative, right? And you would fall asleep sort of in this dormitory area, right? And all of these uh, snakes would crawl over you. And apparently what would happen is, is as you were sleeping, and uh, given this sedative, you would be in a dreamlike state, and um, the the deity of Asclepios crawled over you and actually sort of gave the doctors some insight into how to treat you. So, you'd get up in the morning, you'd meet with the doctor, and they would ask you what you dreamt about. And that would be sort of some insight into the doctor's treatment. Sound pretty satanic, huh? Interesting. I don't know if they do that locally. Um, So, when you think about that, you're like, okay, well, there's another sort of picture of what Jesus was talking about, right? This is probably not uncommon. And even when we get into the sexual immorality and the debauchery that goes with it, you can kind of get a better picture of what was going on. So Jesus, when he's describing Satan's throne, this is just the tip of the iceberg of what was going on in Pergamum. And yet, there was his church. Jesus says, you held fast to my name. He identifies himself with the church. You didn't die, deny me when Antipas was martyred. So you hold on to that. So the next one is, is the next sort of concern is, how are they unfaithful? Right, and so... Um, there's verse 14 and 15, says this, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay. So what is going on with this? So this was sort of a judgment of being soft and tolerant to error sort of drifting into compromise. You could call this not just the unfaithful church, but the compromising church. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, there are some who are in your church that are so wed to the world, and you're allowing those people to be comfortable. You're not saying anything to them. Now, in order to understand Balaam, you need to go back to Numbers 22 to 25. If you want to read that on your own, I'm actually not going to go through it. I'm going to give you a summary of what happened in Numbers 22 to 25. But this is also, um, if you're, you're familiar, I'm sure, with um, Balaam's donkey, with a donkey, Mr. Ed type of thing happens in Scripture. Um, this, is, this is that same section of Scripture. So Balaam was a prophet for hire, right? So he was sort of a mercenary prophet, right? And, he, um, and someone hired him named Balak, and he hired him, and he said, I hate the Israelites, and I want you to curse them, right, and to bring about their destruction. And instead of cursing them, Balaam would bless them because he said, I can only say what my God tells me to say. So three times, Balak brought Balaam to like these vista points to look at all of these sprawling Israelites all over. They were just masses of people, and and Balak hated them. And three times, only Balaam said, in his prayer, what God wanted him to say. He prayed a blessing on them. So, what happens, right? Is this this to go on? So in chapter 25, Balaam devises a plan, right? He decides that there's some Moabite women who will move in among the Israelite men, and the Moabite women will seduce the Israelite men and getting them to intermarry, right? And once they're intermarried, it will pull them into all the idolatry life of Moab. So the life of Moab could be reduced to sort of one statement. And this is actually, I say it a couple of times. It's fornication and idolatrous feasts. So there's food and sex. It could also be described as debauchery and prostitution. And so Balaam tried to work this, his plot and have the women of Moab seduce the men of Israel into, in, into intermarriage. And then he could bring Israel into like a blasphemous union with Satan and idols and fornication, and that would debase Israel and ultimately destroy their power. And the question is, did it work? Ultimately, it worked. Right? That's what happened. So to summarize, the doctrine of Balaam is the teaching that the people of God can intermarry with the heathen and thus will become what the heathen are. Right? Water finds its level. There were some people in this church in Pergamum that said, hey, it's okay to intermarry and intermingle with that pagan system. Right? And we are in danger as a, as a church, and we'd be sort of considered a, an unfaithful church if we look the other way when people who sit under our teaching on a regular basis, if they marry an unbeliever, right? we should caution and plead with them to really consider what they're doing instead. That should be our goal as a church. Because it's serious, and you can see it in Revelation as well. So there were some people in the church saying, well, you can be a Christian and worship idols, and, and you can be a Christian and commit fornication with a heathen priest or priestess at the temple. Right, you can go to the debauchery and the orgies and the festivals and the feasts and still come here and pay your homage to Jesus, that's okay. And they weren't saying anything. So now we have the Nicolaitans. And what happened with them? Now there's sort of lots of opinions on who Nicholas was or the Nicolaitans. Either way, whoever he was, like Balaam, he sort of advocated a very sort of mingled lifestyle, I'd probably call it. Um, He may have been sort of a pre-Gnostic, Right, which sort of teaches that you, have, you enter into this sort of elevated or um, you know, enlightened state of understanding. And he believed that you could conduct yourself in, in any way that you wanted. And uh, the way of the Nicolaitans sort of advocated an extreme indulgence in sin. Right? So uh, there was uncleanness, immorality, um, orgies at times based upon sort of a perverted understanding of God's grace that you could do those things and be forgiven. Um, And then you have the Pergamum church. You know, most of those people had a solid understanding of the truth and theology, but they were tolerating this heretical error of Balaam and the Nicolaitans instead of confronting it, right? They weren't practicing what we call church discipline, biblical church discipline. The, The idea that I'm going to actually, my desire for you, if you are sinning, is to restore you to the body, It's not I'm here to punish you or to set you out. It's to actually bring you close. It would be, the best way I know, it would be like sort of um, two very extremes. I know this is, it would be like a person from the Unitarian Universalist Church, right? Where anything goes, right? You want to believe whatever you want? That's okay. Um, Your view is just as valid as the next. And, And they would go to the same church with sort of a pastor from the underground church in China or North Korea, right? Where there's some regular martyrdom and no one says anything to the unitarian right because they're just so glad she's here and the church that doesn't say anything to the flock demonstrates its fear of man of this unitarian right and its lack of love to restore this wandering person right over their fear of the lord if you turn with me to first john chapter two just a few books over to the left 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So let's pause for just a second to sort of consider ourselves. Where are we in this passage, right? Are we anything like the unfaithful church? And I want you to think about, you know, oftentimes we want to sort of get some perspective on things. Many years ago, if... um, and did some financial seminars, they'd say, well, look at your checkbook, and that's where you can tell what you value in life. But today in the world of social media, I want you to think about the last 90 days of your posts on Facebook or Instagram, Snapchat, I don't think you can with Snapchat, and Instagram, right? What does it say about what you value, right? What does it say about what you believe, right? Do you look like the rest of the world? It's a dog's breakfast The theology on Facebook, right? Does it look like you love the world or the things in the world? Right, to be a faithful church, we need to love the word and what God says in it. Right, and that's how we can actually not be like the church in Pergamum. And verse 16 says, therefore repent. This is Jesus. And stop, repent, period. If not... I will come to you soon and wage war against them with a the sword of my mouth. So number three is, how does Christ exhort the church in Pergamum? He says it very clearly, you need to repent and go the other way. You need to separate your life yourself from the life of sin. And if you don't repent, Jesus said, "I will return and war with judgment." Second Thessalonians 2:8 another sort of judgment passage, Jesus describes it as Jesus killing with the breath of his mouth. It's so powerful, right? And bringing to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's heavy. And Jesus says to the Pergamum church, this is sort of something that's fascinating. He says, the entire church will face and taste Christ's judgment. The entire church Right? We've got the heretics that are practicing sin, and then we've got the rest of the church is under judgment for tolerating it. So no one was absolved from responsibility. So we have the heretics, they're practicing the sin, right? And then you've got the rest of the church, the true believers for sitting and tolerating it and looking the other way. So the goal of the church is not to provide an environment where people can just feel protected from judgment. It's a very popular thing. It's a hot topic when someone doesn't want to talk about their sin. My, the favorite thing is don't judge me or you're judging me. I feel like you're judging me. And, and I know, that, you know, the, place, the church needs to be a place where, where unbelievers can hear the truth, right, and be convicted of their sin so they can be saved. Right? And we need to do it gently and lovingly, right, and graciously, yet firmly. We shouldn't be sort of Um, afraid of saying this is what scripture says here in the church, right? Unbelievers sort of need to be confronted with the reality of their sin, but also God's gracious provision through Jesus Christ. And believers also, you know, are not excluded. They should be expected to be lovingly confronted with the reality of their sin as, as the word is taught. Right? They should both be convicted right, of their sin as the light of truth and the gospel of grace is applied. This is something that um, John MacArthur says. I'm going to just leave this up here. He's talking about this, this particular passage, and he says this. The church isn't designed for unbelievers to come and say whatever they want and be accepted as they are. It's designed for saints to hold the truth and unbelievers to come and hear the truth, and in hearing it, be saved. And when you allow unbelievers to come in and take part and participate in the church, you're going to have people who live a Balaam lifestyle and a Nicolaitan lifestyle, and they'll mingle the church with their fornication and the church with their idolatry. And the Lord says, dot, 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 I'll come with a sword in my mouth and slice them up. That is a very sobering statement one thing that we love about Scripture is that it does not hold back, right? Where we get afraid of man and afraid to say, well, this is, this is what I believe, but this is what Scripture says. You know, and today in the world of relativism, with a lowercase t of truth, right? So if I come to your church and hold to a teaching that is contrary to Scripture and refutes what Scripture says... Right? And I want my belief to be considered just as valid as yours, your ideas. I, in fact, want my belief to be celebrated sort of under the, under the banner of progressivism in the church. Well, if we see this, it's actually regressivism. Jesus says, if you don't repent, I will come soon. Not sort of in a, in a second coming, but through my intervention right in providence. To do what? To protect his church. In verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, so that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what does Christ say? He says you need to listen. That's what he expects from his church at Pergamum in the church in Castor Valley, or in the Bay Area. So our, our responsibility is to he- listen, is to hear, and not just hear for the sake of hearing, but listen and obey. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. First John 5, 4 and 5 says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So in this verse, in verse 17, it talks about to the one who conquers, right? This is the overcomer, right? So in other translations, it's the overcomer. It's the faithful. It's the believer. And he says what? He says, I'm going to give you some hidden manna. So just as a reminder, probably all know, Manna, bread from heaven. Some people call it angel food cake, right? So this is actually sort of honeyed bread that came from heaven for the Israelites wandering in in the wilderness. And manna was one of the things that was asked to be put in the Ark of the Covenant. Right? And manna represents the bread of life. And who is the bread of life? Jesus. So hidden manna, or I will give you Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And then he says, and I will give him a white stone. Of course, there's sort of understanding of what this white stone is, right? So, um, you know, if we think about everything that was going on back in the other churches that we've seen, right? Some real influence from the culture, right? This, this white stone was, it was a victory stone, right? It was this admission pass into the sort of the, the, um, the, the banquet that was held in the games for all of the victors, and the overcomer, or the believer, will receive the ticket to the eternal victory in heaven. And then, of course, this, this piece about um, a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. You know, in Mormonism, they are given a temple recommend card with a name that no one is supposed to know. And I always thought, you know, this is actually just sort of from Mormonism. But he said, look at Isaiah 62 too. This is what he says. Isaiah says this, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Mormonism is a false religion, but this is actually what Jesus says. He will give you a new name that not just in terms of like new as in a replacement of the old, but it's an entirely different quality of name. And and the one that receives it will not know until the Father calls him it. And at that moment, you will know that that is the new name that the Lord has given you. So I just have a few things that I just sort of conclude with. So the church of Pergamum, right? He doesn't hold back. He talks to actually those that are saved in the church, the faithful and the unfaithful. And he has a message of judgment for both of them. For those that are faithful, we don't want to be an unfaithful church, right? We want to be a faithful one, where repentance, you know, a confronting and a turning from sin is, is a daily part of what we do as believers. It's part of our sanctification, of our growth in Christ, and, and, and it's also what we call the unbelieving, too, this repentance, but it's not for their sanctification, it's for their justification, right, and for them to walk away from sin. We want to be faithful to Christ in all areas of our lives. We want to be in the world, pointing to the faithful and true, which is what Jesus is called later on in the book of Revelation, right, who rose and he's coming again, but, but not of the world, right, where someone would be surprised if I were to identify myself with Christ. You know, someone should be shocked, like, oh, well, I didn't know you were a Christian, Hikes. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, right, and the hidden manna isn't for you, and the white stone is not yours, and, and all you have this morning is a sort of judgment. So to put this, you know, I'm not on Facebook, and I don't have to look at your Facebook homepage, right? And I know, since I'm not on Facebook, that there are probably people in this category, right, that you may be living out the doctrine of Balaam, right? or living out the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And as far as anyone around you knows, you're worshiping Christ at the Gateway every Sunday. And you go from this place into idolatry and immorality. And the Lord says he will come and make war with you sooner or later. And he too is calling you to repent. So I'd ask you this morning, are, are, are you living out a doctrine that is, not, that is an affront to Christ. So I ask you to turn as we end of the story, Revelation 22. So this is the end of the story. And you can see, that actually, verse, 20, verse 12 and verse, in chapter 22. And Jesus says this. He says, Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. And that would be an intimidating statement for those who call the name of Christ and those who don't. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Said, mentioned that. The beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price let's pray father god we are so thankful for your son jesus and we recognize that this is a this is um some of these churches are hard to hear And we confess our own sin, our lack of desire to repent on an ongoing basis, where we have bought into what the world says is, is, is valuable. We have settled for temporal things and, and temporary pleasures for the very bread of life, who is your son, Jesus. We thank you for your word, God, that it is, it is challenging, it is an encouragement in times where where we see things going on, um, like in Charleston, and are deeply troubled. And God, we we, um, desire to be a faithful church. And we desire to proclaim your name boldly, regardless of persecution, or regardless of things that are going on outside our very doors that uh, are an affront to you. God, first and foremost, we repent of that sin in our own hearts and where we've held on to those things. God, we need more of you and less of us. We thank you. We thank you for your um, hope that is found only in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.